We're talking politics and in particular the upcoming virtual NAMT EMS on the Hill Day. I'm Rob Lawrence and this is EMS One Stop. Delighted to welcome my guest today in this CMS One Stop, and it is uh, Chief Bruce Evans. Of course, everybody knows is the president of NAMT. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for having me today, Rob. So we're going to talk politics. Uh, when do we never talk politics? But uh, we are having uh, a big, a bit of a pandemic. You may have noticed that. Obviously, a lot of associations are coming together to work together in order to put EMS to the top of the pile and to make sure that we're funded, to make sure that we're noticed to make sure that uh, you know folk understand what we're up to but uh, let's talk about politics for a second how who who is a politician in this EMS world in which we live well i think you know we all have a political function uh, i think as uh, public safety providers um, and first responders um, you know we serve the public we're servant leaders to the public so that kind of makes us um, that makes us politicians um, you know a lot of us are out there um, providing services making sure that we we deliver some level of quality um, because they pay our bills. And I totally agree. That was almost a set-up question, I think, because we drive around in billboards, right? We have either an ambulance or, indeed, you're a, a fire first responder in your uh, fire apparatus. People see you coming. People can hear you coming. Maybe not so much on red lights in the future, we hope, but you're there, and therefore it gives you a chance to uh, use that, I guess, that image to actually ask you know, ask for stuff, whether it's pay rises, whether it's legislative changes. And so I think what you just said to me is that everybody here we're talking to and listening is a politician, whether you're the, the guy in the truck or whether you're the chief in the corner office. That's correct. Everybody has a role and, you know, it's a team effort and there's a lot of uh, exposure. Uh, and we've, we've seen that. We've seen uh, places where uh, political initiatives by first responders have failed. Uh, we still see there's many of the states in the union that don't have EMS as a essential service. And there's a lot of folks that still don't know what we do. And of course, we know that we're having struggles with funding and that funding is also affecting uh, being able to pay a livable wage to a lot of EMS providers. So you said something I was going to ask you there. So a lot of folks still don't know what we do. So if you're at the station, at the squad, uh, in the department, uh, you know, what should you be doing to get yourself noticed then? How can we do that? Well, marketing and, you know, getting the message out and connecting with your community. You know, I think after 9-11, we saw this shift of public safety folks that kind of put themselves behind walls and fences and locked down with security as we were deemed uh, critical infrastructure. And now we're probably in a situation where we need to be getting out and talking to the folks a little bit more and making sure that we make those connections in the community. Um, you know, I'm pretty fortunate that my staff is really exceptional at getting out and knowing our, our public and our, our community and our customers or our constituents, whatever you want to you know, call them. But you know, it makes a big difference to know, you know, who the I call them heirloom families, uh, you know, the people that have settled in our community and uh, have been part of the fabric of the community for years. 
um, uh, also the the key places that are important to the community. I, I like to tell people that you don't have a good community unless you have good libraries, good fire stations, and good public services. And uh, libraries and fire stations are kind of my bellwether on that. But, um, you know, those are those are places where you have a chance to meet and greet people, um, certainly in the grocery store. Uh, and then, of course, every EMS call, um, you know, the way that people walk in, um, how you're dressed, you know, how professional you are, how, how courteous you are. And then even something as simple as offering somebody a blanket in the back of the ambulance. You know, these are all things that connect with people and hearing their stories. People listening are probably going, what's that got to do with politics? And of course, the answer is it creates that community awareness, that community involvement. And then when it comes down to those few little words, which are all in favour of all those in favour, depending on how you call the vote, things could well go your way because of the good work that your guys have done on the ground. That's exactly right, Rob. And, you know, really what it comes down to is the public trust. So EMS and fire, uh, you know, first responders uh, in those categories still hold the public trust. Uh, And we certainly have seen what's happened to our brothers in law enforcement, our brothers and sisters in law enforcement, and how they're struggling with the public trust right now. We in EMS and fire, fortunately, have not suffered that same fate yet. But it's only going to take, you know, one event in the media um, for that to happen. And, and frankly, I'm telling you, I'm quite surprised about a couple of the events that happened um, in the last couple of years that hasn't drawn the ire of the public towards EMS. Somebody said that, you know, you should make, take advantage of the, the, the situation that's in front of you. But I think we have, to quote our good friend Gary Ludwig, been on the tip of the spear now for coming up for possibly nearly two years. And we are still here, still working. We seem to be the safety net for everybody. Um, whether it's uh, hospitals, whether it's uh, you know community vaccination sites. Uh, back in the day, it was testing, tracking, tracing. We've been there and done it all now. And uh, of course, what we want to do, I think, and certainly this is where NAMT is possibly going to help us, is to get us in front of those elected officials in order to ask the next ask, perhaps. Yeah, Rob, um, if you'll indulge me a minute with a, a short story here. So obviously the PPP funds, when those came down, those went to counties. And if you looked deep into the authorizing legislation that came from Congress that provided that money to counties, it said that first responders were eligible for premium pay with that money. So now here in La Plata County, Southwest Colorado, uh, the Durango micropolitan areas, we call it. The four fire chiefs, we're all fire-based EMS here, the four fire chiefs sent a letter over to our county commissioners asking for all of our first responders that have been face-to-face with COVID patients in the back of an ambulance or exposing themselves, potentially taking the COVID home to their families, um, that they would bonus $2,500, which was less than 1% of the PPP money that came to our county. And it took a while, but we got a letter back from their government affairs person that said, we have a hard time distinguishing essential workers and between you guys and the grocery store clerks and the public works people, Uh, which was, you know, I I thought it was insulting, Uh, but it just tells you the disconnect 
of our politicians that they don't know what kind of risk we've gone through. And, and I would tell you that as it stands today, we're doing this podcast in, um, you know, first week in February, second week in February, we have lost uh, the number of paramedics and firefighters that have died from COVID. Um, and you see it come across the, the wire every other day, it seems like. We've lost almost a metro size fire department of personnel. When you count up firefighters and paramedics that have died from COVID, a metro sized fire department is over 300 people. In the last two years, we're, a, we're just over a metro sized fire department. So that's the entire city of Miami's fire department gone. I haven't thought about it in that way, Bruce, but when you add in also um, every week at the, the federal meeting that, that I attend and also your your rep, uh, Brian Nelson, who does a superb job on that meeting, by the way, so let's shout out to Brian. You know, we receive every week the line of duty death stats and the numbers. And actually, when you think about there's also call takers uh, within that those numbers and there's also police officers and lots of them within those numbers. Actually, to your point, we've wiped a small town off the map. And that is absolutely sobering. Yeah. And if you would think of a a community like Miami or Lincoln, Nebraska, or, um, you know, a a medium-sized city's emergency services completely gone. And, uh, and again, it's, it's mind boggling. And, And I think, you know, as we start talking about getting in front of the politicians to tell them, you know, what the situation has been, um, and again, some of them get it, uh, but there's a lot of them that don't. And you, you, you worry about what is the next emergency, you know, nationwide emergency going to bring. And we're, we're frankly, we're entering that next uh, epidemic right now. And that's the fentanyl epidemic. And I, I told somebody the other day, Rob, I think in the next two years, we're going to kill as many people with fentanyl as COVID did. I'll bet we get closer. To, we'll get close to five hundred thousand people by the end of end of the year. Um, it's the number one killer of people under the age of forty, and it's the next epidemic on the horizon. So all these folks that have been um, carrying the water for COVID for two years are now going to have to carry the water on the fentanyl epidemic, and and it's a it's a lot to ask. That's probably a whole nother podcast, and I hope you come back for that, because every week also, we Nemesis publish their rather excellent by-the-numbers charts, which not only talks about ILI, COVID, influenza-like illness stuff, but also talks about, you know, from their, you know, year's worth of 40 million records per year where they're, they're running, doing running totals. The fact is that all throughout the pandemic, opioids hasn't gone away. It's only got bigger and got uh, more, you know, deeper as an issue, and so I totally agree with you, and I think that we've got to, uh, you know, keep a keep an eye on that one, and, and that's certainly something we're going to be talking about. As I say, that's that's a, a job for another discussion, but uh, let's stay with the politics for a second, and uh, we're just going to go to a break uh, and listen to our own sponsor, the guys from Blink. Given the current workforce challenges, retention is now more important than ever. By ensuring that field staff feel appreciated, informed, and listened to. Blink's all-in-one employee app is currently helping EMS providers across the nation to improve their retention rates significantly. With Blink, frontline employees are able to communicate with their managers, receive company updates, and gain access to key systems like payroll and scheduling, all within an easy-to-use mobile app. 
If you're interested in finding out how Blink can help your organisation to improve employee retention and engagement, then please visit www.joinblink.com forward slash demo to learn more. This is George Monk from Blink. Thank you for listening. As always, uh, that was the tones of uh, my good English friend, George from Blink. But uh, if you're listening, whatever platform you're listening on, take a moment to give us a rating, give us a review, give us a like. uh, So we go up the charts in uh, in podcast land, uh, which is what we want to do. And don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher and Spotify. And I'm sure other platforms as they come along. Coming back to you, uh, Bruce Evans, uh, we're here to talk about politics, but let's talk about the next big event that's coming up for you guys, which is the virtual EMS on the Hill. I'm a veteran of the real live EMS on the Hills, and of course, not only do you get to meet politicians, but you get a hell of a lot of steps in. But tell us about the virtual EMS on the Hill. All right, Rob. So uh, we we didn't have any, we had full intentions of going getting back on the Hill in person this year. And I would tell you that we ran into some barriers as we started on planning And one of those barriers was a lot of the uh, congressional representatives did not want to meet with their constituents in D.C. A lot of it uh, was being blamed on the January 6th event. And while there's uh, on the Republican side, they're willing to meet with you. uh, You still had to be escorted in and out of the building and you could not loiter in the cafeterias like we have done in the past. And they were probably going to do a background check on you uh, for the entry. And we felt that was asking our members too much to do. And that uh, the logistics behind that and the unpleasantness, especially if there was a uh, problem with uh, the weather, um, that it was going to be, uh, it would make it a miserable experience. And as you well know, in the past, uh, and you've attended a lot of these EMS days on the Hill, you know, it, part of it is uh, getting a chance to speak with somebody out in the hall or catching a representative in the cafeteria um, or meeting up with another contingency somewhere else in the building uh, that was from another state and hearing how uh, their their pitches went. Uh, so the collaboration was going to be hindered by the current state of affairs with uh, some security issues in the congressional offices. So we made the decision to go virtual, and I would tell you that in the past when we had gone virtual from COVID, we actually had more people attending, but we certainly have that contingency out there that we respect immensely that loves being on the Hill and, you know, doing the proverbial, uh, you know, putting hand to hand in a handshake with their representatives and getting to go face to face with them. And... I think it's an invaluable experience in person, especially when you get into a congressional office and you have a chance to interface with staffers who frequently are making the decision about whether your issue gets taken up to their boss. And that alone is an invaluable experience. And the other thing that I always do is I always look around a congressional office and see what resonates and what, uh, you know, what is that congressional representative's uh, interest, you know, and you sometimes see statues or paintings or books or gifts that have been given to them. And uh, they make for good conversation pieces to open up the discussion that, uh, you know, kind of puts it on a little bit more of a, of a collegial uh, presentation um, and a collegial talk instead of just coming in and giving a kind of a sterile pitch. 
Um, you know how that is. You open it up with a couple of friendly greetings, a little bit of conversation about something in the office, and then next thing you know, you're into our issues. And uh, and again, it makes it a little bit more comfortable for the staff or the, or for the representative that's listening uh, to your pitch. Just to do a recap, then that uh, EMS on the Hill used to be the fact that we'd all go, we'd all arrive in Washington D.C. We would be allocated into groups by state, uh, if not allocated into groups by constituency. Uh, and then we'd go around and, and meet our elected officials, obviously with the bit we're going to talk about next, which is, you know, the ask, the uh, the legislative agenda. Um, and we'd have a chance to put folk in uniform in front of our elected officials. Now, I hadn't realized, Bruce, for a second that uh, that everything, we were locked out of, effectively locked out of D.C. I thought it was because of the pandemic. I hadn't realized it was the security issues which puts a whole new kind of spin on the fact that it was always the people's house. I was always amazed being an Englishman, having come from London, where you know you wouldn't get anywhere near Parliament, obviously because of the you know the Northern Ireland t- troubles slash terrorist threats. You couldn't get anywhere near the Houses of Parliament, and I was overly impressed when I came here that you could literally go through the the, the magnetron metal detector and you were in, walking around, mixing and mingling. And so I think that's a sad loss, actually. And uh, you're quite right. We would meet up in the halls, in the various cafeterias, explore the tunnels underneath the the various buildings, which again is amazing. If you haven't, if they ever open up again, I would commend people to go and do that just to experience, you know, literally you are walking under the corridors of power, in the corridors of power. But clearly all that's gone. But so we're now virtual. And so it's going to be on the April the 4th to the 8th. You don't have to be there every day. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second. And you can then represent your state to in hopefully in front of your own elected official and pass the message on. So how is the 4th to the 8th going to work, Bruce? So this year we've uh, divided everything up into each state has a day that they're, um, that they're supposed to uh, show up on. Um, and we've done that so that we can kind of isolate down for people to one, to get the staffers all in the same location. And then the other thing is to make efficient use of people's time, you know, realizing that one, uh, one of the issues that we're taking to the Hill is staffing shortages and, you know, people may not have the ability to spread their visits out over four days. So we're trying to concentrate everything on uh, specific days where each state has an assigned date um, and that our lobbyists and the people that we've contracted to help out with this are able to manage it and piece it down a little bit. Um, the NEMT board is still going to be meeting in D.C., uh, and part of that was the issue that we had already reserved the hotel and put a deposit down on it uh, for EMS uh, Day on the Hill. And just to be fair to the uh, contractors with the Hilton Corporation, uh, we're trying to accommodate um, a little bit of attendance. And so we'll be doing it virtually from the hotel and the Hilton Hotel in Crystal City. Um, but the uh, we've, we like I said, we're trying to divide it up a little bit to make it a little bit more manageable and to make it a little easier for the constituents to kind of uh, pencil in a day uh, versus three or four days. That's excellent. And uh, I have to say that the California Day is on the Tuesday. I've already signed on and uh, I can't wait to be a part of that. And just a little bit of feedback from some of our California colleagues that attended last year, but they actually felt it was really a good event in terms of the fact that, all, all right, we're on Zoom. 
But actually, as, as we said before we started recording, it does take away a little bit of the nerves because I'm just staring at the lens and not in a room full of people. And some, you know, some folk have a little bit of difficulty or need a bit of a prod to actually, you know, speak up in, in a room full of, you know, elected officials or indeed, as you well know, their staffers. And so the, the feedback I got was actually this was good because actually you got one to one. You saw the, your face, saw the, the face of the elected official in the camera and you had actually their undivided attention. And so that was actually perceived as a good thing. The key question, Bruce, is, as usual, there is a briefing that goes before EMS on the Hill Day. NAMT obviously has its legislative asks. So what are those asks, Bruce? So the, the first thing that we're going to bring forward, and NAMT has been working very diligently on this for the last six months, is the issue amongst the first responders, especially EMS, And now we're starting to see it a little bit in fire, and we're certainly seeing it in law enforcement, the lack of staffing. And not only the lack of staffing with people leaving the profession early for uh, stress-related issues or because they're being lured away out of the field into the hospital environment, um, but we know that the pipeline is drying up. And we're we're trying to put staffing issues first, uh, front and center, in front of the congressional delegations. And one of the things that the ask is, and we haven't quite refined the message yet, that we want Congress to supply, and you've heard me talk about this before, but I think we're still massaging the the title and the message to this, something similar to the the GI Bill. And and I've called it the EMS GI Bill, um, where, If you were to serve as an EMT somewhere for a significant period of time, much like a soldier does in the armed forces, that we would provide you um, the money to secure your accredited paramedic training program. So uh, much like you have to do military service for three or four years, and then you can go choose your, your college of choice and your program of choice, we would specifically earmark this money to go to uh, paying for your paramedic training. Um, the fire service would like to call this uh, an apprentice program and kind of get back into the apprentice world. And certainly as we've seen some changes in uh, national registry with the uh, skills testing piece, uh, maybe apprentice programs are the answer to make sure that we can uh, ensure that people are coming with the full set of skills It kind of, uh, dovetails or parallels with the idea from National Registry about uh, building portfolios and having a portfolio a look at your skill development as compared to a snapshot in time, which we know may or may not be accurate. So that's the first ask is to try to get some funding and some recognition on what is going on with the ability to deliver more people into this profession. The second ask is going to be um, for what we call the EMS counts bill. So one of the things we we know right now, Rob, is we we don't know, we know people are leaving, but we don't know where they're going. Like, for example, we looked at uh, a couple of states, Texas and I think Arkansas, and we realized that out of all the paramedics in EMTs, all the paramedics that are licensed or certified, in those two states, that only 30% of them are actually filling out electronic patient care reports in those states. 
So you have to make the assumption that 70% of the other paramedics, where are they at? And they're not in the field filling out run reports. So are they in clinics? Are they in cardiac cath labs? Are they working as ER techs? But they're not filling out the patient care reports that are being submitted into the state EMS offices. So if only 30% of our workforce is actually doing the job, um, you know, that, that gives you a false impression that there's this, you know, there's some redundancy in our safety net, as you stated earlier. And, uh, and there's not. So where are these people going? We have to count them. And so the EMS counts bill is one of the things we're asking for, because right now you don't know if a paramedic um, is functioning as a, um, a firefighter paramedic, which they get counted as a firefighter or if they're functioning um, in some other fashion where they're not actually counted as an EMS worker. So this is uh, Senate Bill uh, 2971. It's called the EMS Counts Act of 2021. And we're trying to get that reauthorized, get a few more sponsors on it, and get the Department of Labor and NIOSH to be able to count it correctly so that we know where people are going in our profession, how many are actually even serving? Like, for example, we, we, we don't know where they're migrating to. We don't know what the migration of, of people leaving this profession is. Now, National Registry would tell you that as soon as people get their degree, their four-year degree, that starts their countdown and most of them stay less than five years in EMS. And at least on the National Registry side, we know that those people are migrating to nursing, PA, RT, or medical school. And, you know, that opens up the whole other argument about mandating degrees or not. But, um, we, again, we don't know what the migration is. We don't know where they're going. Um, during the NEMT listening sessions last year, uh, which are coming up again, we heard from several agencies in, in the southeast part of the United States that they were losing paramedics into the cardiac cath labs. And, and not for a lot, a lot more money, but for bankers' hours and air conditioning. So when you think about it, during COVID, you've had EMS workers have to be in and out of Pappers, maybe in and out of Tyvek, seven or eight times a shift in 100-degree heat and 90% humidity, um, that's not only uh, mentally taxing, but it's physiologically taxing. And if I could be in the cardiac cath lab making the same amount of money 40 hours a week and watching some really cool stuff happen, why wouldn't I? So, so that comes back to some of the stuff that to other associations, and of course, you know, I, I work very closely with the American Ambulance Association, is around the funding. Because, of course, if we can't take the money in from places like Medicaid, then we can't pay the money out in terms of a living, thriving wage. And so that's certainly something that, uh, you know, and we'll talk about other associations in a second. But uh, what else is on your list, Bruce? So the other big ask is going to be um, for the reauthorization of the rural EMS equipment and training assistance, which we've, we've known collectively as the SIREN Act when it first passed. So the SIREN Act was designed to help support rural EMS agencies in building up their capacity uh, to deliver emergency medical services. Now, originally when this was put through, it only had $5 million put to it. And that got consumed pretty quickly. 
Um, I, I had to, you know, in full disclosure, my agency at Upper Pine, we received a Siren Act grant or a SAMHSA grant uh, to the tune of $200,000. And that uh, that's providing for training of 25 EMTs and a ton of additional equipment in the way of technology, smart boards and projectors, um, a few mannequins and some uh, simulation equipment for Narcan training and some of the other things that SAMHSA is very passionate about. So um, it, it's been monumental in making an impact in our organization. But I would tell you that there's a lot of other rural EMS agencies out there that we know are struggling dramatically. And this needs to be something around 20 million. So the ask is for 20 million to be put into the Siren Act and uh, in its reauthorization and to bump up uh, the amount of money that SAMHSA is able to distribute to rural EMS agencies. And again, that's another podcast in the making, Bruce, just talking about rural EMS, because they are the ones that uh, are probably at huge amounts of risk. Of course, I know that uh, you, you are in one yourself. Uh, and of course, where we see the, you know, the possibility of cl- agencies closing, of not getting enough folk in, having to cover mutual aid across vast tracts of land because another agency is in, in trouble is something that we need to pay very close attention to. And I fear that we kind of get stuck in the metropolitan world and sometimes we ignore at our peril things that are happening out there in uh, in rural America. So that, that, that's a good one. Yeah, you know, rural EMS is certainly unique. Um, and, and, and I'm very fortunate that I have a pretty stable staff and, and we're doing some out-of-the-box things as a rural agency, which I think, you know, that, that job enrichment, as I call it, uh, keeps keeps people there. Um, and then there's a couple other items that we haven't got completely flushed out yet um, that are almost uh, ready for prime time, which is um, some sort of ask on the mental health situation. And we, NEMT is getting ready to launch. It's in its beta test right now, a mental health resiliency officer course. Um, and that's really the tip of the iceberg when we talk about potentially what is going to happen after COVID. So it's the alarm response um, and, and the crisis of the pandemic starts to retreat and everybody has a chance to breathe and reflect on, you know, what, how stressful and how impactful this event was. We know there's going to be a lot of mental health issues. And those are mental health issues that the, the federal government is going to have to step in and help us with. Um, and, and one of the things, Rob, that is uh, probably going to be an ask in this is some way to fund segregated, and I know that that may not be the most appropriate word, but um, or um, mental health facilities that are not co-housed with the mental health patients you transported a couple of days before. And we know that is a barrier for EMS workers to come in because we know there's a certain amount of folks that are not going to do well in EAP. They're probably not going to do well in counseling and they're going to need to unplug and be inpatient um, to kind of unload or as we say, unpack a lot of the stresses that they've experienced over um, this pandemic. And we're, we're going to need some assistance with that. And we don't want anybody to fall through the cracks. 
so um, there's an ask that will be coming for mental health. And then the last thing that is probably going to be out there is, again, that scenario that I mentioned to you before where PPP money was kind of diverted into other projects that politicians uh, may have felt were a bigger priority than rewarding uh, first responders for carrying the water on this event. And how do we get how do we get bonus or premium pay into the hands of those first responders that have been here doing the yeoman's work? And yeoman's work is indeed. So let's just kind of summarize. Those were the legislative asks. EMS on the Hill Day, the virtual EMS on the Hill Day is in the week of the 4th to the 8th of April. Um, you will then be allocated, depending on what state you're in, a day in which you'll be on deck. And obviously, the folk that are helping Bruce and uh, the association will corral everybody into the right state, into the right senator's office, into the right elected official's office to uh, to say your piece. And obviously, there's a briefing day, I think, on the 29th, if I'm not mistaken, Bruce, right, of March. That's correct. And so that's all EMS on the Hill virtual. Um now, where can we go to read about it and where can we go, more importantly, to sign on to take part in it, Bruce? NAMT.org. Um, it's, on, it's the headliner on our uh, where, when you land on the NAMT.org webpage. And uh, I've already, for full disclosure, signed on and can't wait for that day to come. Now, as I've got you, let's just talk about a couple of other things. Uh, we've been in the pandemic for a for a, a long time now, and people are now talking about it in terms of dog years, right? So one pandemic year equals seven years anywhere else. Thank you, Joseph Zelkin, for uh, coming up with that idea. But, of course, there's been some great collaboration. And, and for me, collaboration has been the word of the day with various other things I've been up to. But uh, talk about uh, how you're working so well with other national associations. So a few years ago, uh, NAMT started meeting, and, and I, I guess I would call it discreetly, um, because, you know, we are... You know, NEMT or, you know, EMS has been kind of a balkanized group of individual organizations. And, uh, you know, I, I liken this back to my experience when we did negotiated rulemaking. Um, there was a guy named Jack Crakeel who was part of the International Association of Fire Chiefs at the time. He was a uh, EMS chief down in, I, I believe, Gwinnett County, Georgia. But uh, Jack had the innate ability to bring people together. He was uh, much like Norman McSwain. He, he could get people in a room that disagreed with stuff. And by the time they were done and they came out, they were all on the same sheet of music. Um, we have not seen the collaboration of, at that level until recently. So we went almost 20 years without kind of getting together with, uh, you know, I guess with the, in, in what, what distinguishes the four groups that meet routinely is that we all have lobbyists, we all have paid executive directors and, you know, and fairly significant memberships and political action committees. Uh, so it's typically been uh, NEMT, the AAA, um, the IFF and the IFC. Uh, and typically it's the president of those organizations and the lobbyist from the organization and the executive director from the organization. So everybody brings something to the table, both monetarily and uh, lobbying wise. And that was kind of the common factor is that we all have paid lobbyists and we want them singing on the same sheet of music when they go to Congress. 
And I would tell you that they have. And that's a lot of the reason why there's been a lot of breakthrough in a lot of the issues that we've been struggling with and trying to get traction on the Hill with. And I think that the collaboration has been recognized by all the agencies. Um, we don't, uh, you know, for lack of better description, we don't have too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, and I think that we have a pretty standardized message that comes out after we meet. Um, you know, and again, we meet pretty routinely on this about issues that we can collaborate on. Um, and I'll tell you, there's a fair amount of sausage making that goes on in those uh, meetings. Um, you know, we hash over things. We look <laughs> at pros and cons in a professional way. And uh, by the time we're done, uh, much like you do in any good organization with strong leadership is uh, you may not have agreed and you may have put, made your point, but you come out uh, on the same sheet of music and, and, and carrying the water for uh, the collaboration of the team. There was a ton of metaphors there, but, uh, you know, the sheet music has produced a great choir and the sausage music has produced, the sausage making has produced an amazing bratwurst. So I commend you all for everything. We're back to live conferencing. So I just want to finish off. Uh, Pinnacle is still a way away in Florida, but uh, you've got an exciting class that you guys are going to lead. Yeah, so we're, um, you know, one of the things that my presidency was uh, I wanted to get EMTs and paramedics to run for their state houses, not find a candidate that you really like and that you're going to go support, but to actually be the candidate. And I'll tell you where this idea comes from is. So if you remember back in 96 or 93, um, the SBR went through and there were uh, proposed and uh, slated legislative cuts to reimbursement for physicians. And the physician in they they lobbied hard and they kept getting it postponed, much like almost identical to what's going on with the um, ambulance extenders that um, you know are the incentives for super rural, rural and suburban um, EMS calls or reimbursement on Medicare. And you know we keep getting those pushed out. We keep getting them extended for another three or four years or another five years. Well, the same thing was going on with SBR. And finally, in 2013, they, uh, in 2014, in that year of Congress, they wound up doing something called the Doc Fix. And that essentially repealed all those cuts under SBR um, to the physician's uh, pay and their services, and it put some quality metrics in. Now, what was going on in 2013 that allowed that to happen? There were more physicians in Congress than any time in the U.S. history, 21. And we had some emergency medicine docs in there. Joe Heck was in there. Raul from Southern California was in there. Uh, one of the physicians from, I believe, the British Virgin Islands was in there. Um, so uh, we had cardiologists. We had uh, chest surgeons. We had doctors in Congress. Now, did they, you know, did they... Was there 20 of them? Is that enough to really get legislation passed? No. But they were able to be on the Hill, uh, rubbing elbows with their colleagues and explaining their issues one to one. And that, I think, made the difference. So uh, we're laying the groundwork now. I got a goal that I want to see one paramedic or EMT in every state house in the union. So 50 paramedics or EMTs to run 
uh, in the next 10 years to get into state houses. And then ideally, maybe somebody takes to it well enough in the state houses that they become competitive for the big house. And to do that, uh, we're going to be holding a political academy as an after conference at Pinnacle on Friday, July 29th. And we're just getting into finalizing the slate of speakers, uh, but we're going to have somebody come in and talk about how to do fundraising, how to make the ask. And if you've ever been to a political event, you know that, um, you know, that fundraising is, is key in any campaign. And then we're going to have some uh, a person talk about uh, polling. So how do you do refine your message um, and, and make sure that it resonates with the people so that uh, you can get elected? They're not going to vote for you if your message doesn't resonate. So you have to do polling to refine that message. We're going to have somebody, you know, talk about. So let's say you're on an EMS call 20 years ago and you kick somebody's dog and it made the paper. And now you want to run for office. Well, is that article going to come back up in opposition research? So we're going to have a computer specialist that does work for campaigns that knows how to either bury that stuff in the Google search engine or help you uh, clean it up. Um, we're also going to have somebody in to talk about how to conduct a ground game. Um, you don't want to knock on every door because, you know, there's some people there that, depending on your party, just are not going to vote for you no matter what. So do you really want to waste your time knocking on that door and talking to that candidate uh, or talking to that voter uh, as a candidate? Probably not. So we're going to have somebody explain ground games and we'll have a lunch speaker that'll probably be somebody that um, has been elected to office that's a paramedic or EMT. So right now, uh, Sue Prentice is in the New Hampshire House. Uh, Leroy Garcia is the president of the Colorado Senate. Uh, we have a firefighter paramedic that's in the Oregon House. Um, and we have a few others in uh, New York and Iowa that are with private ambulance that are in their state houses. So um, I'm kind of going down the list to ask uh, for lunch speakers on that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I can get somebody that's actually been there and done that um, and experiencing it right now that's able to tell the story. And then the exciting thing, which everybody's kind of uh, where the buzz is, is that at the end of the day, we're going to have a a simulated campaign fundraising event. So working with Pinnacle and Fitch and Associates, we've got uh, one of the restaurants and bars to close off and we're going to simulate a uh, closed door fundraising event. And there'll be a, a candidate that will come in and work the room and try to raise money or sell his ideas. And he'll have a campaign manager and although I don't have him completely signed on to the event, he's verbally told me he would love to do it. And I think for those of you that have been in EMS any amount of time, you know the guy that works a room better than anybody in EMS, Ed Rock. So I think Randy Strozak wants to be his campaign manager. So we'll have Ed come in and we'll have him uh, be the candidate. And we'll see how much money he can raise in this event. Here's the twenty dollars for the for the for the rock and Strozik pack already. I can't. <laughs> that's going to be fantastic. L listen, that is going to be an amazing course, and uh, perhaps a little bit later on, Bruce, we can uh, come back and certainly have a podcast 
I'm going to be there that day, although I've got a couple of closing up sessions that I'm delivering myself, but I wouldn't mind dropping in to, you know, maybe interview some folk as, as, as that goes on, because this sounds like an amazing opportunity. So if you're out there listening and you aspire to some sort of political or higher office, this is a great start because as Bruce has described there, there are strategies and tactics and methods and methodologies and doctrine and plans and people and everything that you have to uh, understand and, and obviously a landscape that you have to navigate. And so that is going to be fun and exciting and really worthwhile, Bruce. So thank you. Listen, we've come to the end of, uh, end of not the end of time. We've, we've run out of time. We, we're not at the end of time. That, that would, we would have thought that this time last year, perhaps. How can we get hold of you? My contact information is on the NAMT website. Um, so I'm still old school with an AOL address. Uh, Hawkeye EMS at AOL.com. Uh, some of you know I'm from Iowa, so that uh, I've had that uh, AOL address since I was since AOL started in Iowa. God knows how long ago. That's cool. And uh, before we go, I've just got to tell you one quick story. You mentioned the doc fix, and I suddenly realized that that was my very first EMS on the hill. Um, and of course, I am the Englishman in a US EMS uniform. And they thought it would be a hoot to let me be the spokesperson for the Virginia, um, you know, lobby. And so I would get up and stand, you know, stand and get ready to speak. And of course, then this accent came out of that uniform and it actually worked for a little while when they went, oh, well, who's this guy here then? And uh, if you have an English accent and an American EMS uniform, use that to good effect, please. Bruce, thank you so much. Uh, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1 or go over and look me up on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm there. But for the moment, Bruce, and I say for the moment, we'll have you back. Thank you very, very much indeed, sir. Well, thanks, Rob, for having me. That's all for now. I've been Rob Lawrence. This has been EMS One Stop. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>